On today's episode, I'll be talking about a couple of very different teen movies, starting with The Breakfast Club from 1985, followed by Dazed and Confused from 1993. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said we've got some teen movies and i figured that'd be a good warm-up topic to just kind of get into these teen movies i don't know that i'll cover many of these on this podcast but i just thought it would be kind of fun to dive into what they're all about usually So, for the first one, we have Risky Business, which stars Tom Cruise, and honestly, it's about this kid who, his parents go away for the weekend, and he's gonna have, like, a party, and it turns pretty dark in the later parts of the movie. I mean, he gets involved with these hookers, and basically, the plot just kind of comes out of left field. You think it's gonna be this lighthearted comedy, and I mean, it's got that famous scene of Tom Cruise sliding across the wood floor to the tune of Bob Seger's old-time rock and roll, and that has just been parodied to death, honestly. It's kind of ridiculous. So the next one is The Karate Kid, and that one has Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita, and honestly, that one is a solid movie. It's not, like, it doesn't seem to fall subject to the shitty cliches of most teen movies, but it's definitely, to me, a teen movie. It's gotta be, like, I just, I mean, Ralph Macchio is supposed to be a teenager, and it's basically, like, him getting trained to know karate and all this stuff. I mean, it's a pretty solid flick. It's worth checking out if you ever get a chance. Then we have 16 Candles with Molly Ringwald and, I believe, Anthony Michael Hall, and that one is not my cup of tea. It's just, I don't know if it's, I'm not the target audience or something like that, but basically Molly Ringwald deals with the fact that her family has forgotten her 16th birthday. The whole story just feels kind of dumb to me. I don't, I don't think that it's like one of those ones that you really want to make, uh, entire movie out of. I mean, that would be a good episode of a TV show maybe, but I don't, think full movie no thanks then we have pretty in pink which also has molly ringwald and john cryer and i just i also don't think that this one is particularly good i don't really i mean i'll reveal this later but i am not a huge molly ringwald fan i don't think that she's that great i don't i don't know why she got famous in the 80s at all but she was like the it girl for these teen movies, and it's kind of fucking crazy. And then we have Ferris Bueller's Day Off, previously covered on this podcast, and I just love this fucking movie. It's honestly so fucking great. It doesn't feel like the average teen movie. It's a really funny concept of Ferris Bueller just 
skipping school and hanging out with a couple of friends, and it's really a pretty solid movie. I find it very funny at a lot of points, and it's very good. Then we have Can't Hardly Wait, which I believe has Jennifer Love Hewitt and Seth Green and a couple of other people, but it's not like a particularly good movie to me. I think it's kind of got some funny spots here and there, but I just... I hadn't seen this one, and I saw it when I was much older, so it's like, I mean, I was already in my 30s, so I was definitely not the target audience anymore, and most of these other ones I saw when I was younger, and it actually appealed more to me from that standpoint. Then there's 10 Things I Hate About You. This has got Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Julia Stiles, and... Heath Ledger in it, and it's also got the girl that played Alex Mack. I can never remember her name, but she was Alex Mack on Nickelodeon. And anyway, this movie is, it's got a lot of iconic scenes, but it's just kind of stupid. I don't think it's particularly good. It's kind of just okay. There are some good moments here and there, and I love the actors in this movie. I mean, I'm a fan of all of them, but... Honestly, it's just, it's not a movie I really ever need to go back to and revisit. Then there's American Pie, which is a comedy starring Jason Biggs and Chris Klein and Mina Suvari and Tara Reid and a whole bunch of people. And I just loved these movies when I was younger and it partially helped that they had topless scenes in them. I won't deny that. I mean, when I was a kid, it's like, that's what I wanted to see. And I was so excited to actually get a chance to see that. But honestly, like the humor is not great now to go back to it. It's like, I'd rather leave that one in the vault and just accept the fact that it's not particularly great as an adult. And it's only funny to somebody who's a teenager, honestly. Then there's Cruel Intentions, which has Sarah Michelle Gellar, Reese Witherspoon, and Ryan Philippi. It's such a fucking weird movie. Basically, Sarah Michelle Gellar is Ryan Philippi's... They're like step-siblings, basically, and I don't know... They kind of want to fuck each other, or they actually really want to fuck each other, but it's kind of like this not wholly unspoken thing that they have going on. I mean, they know that they would like to do each other, and it turns into a bet with Ryan Philippi trying to get this girl played by Reese Witherspoon, who is like kind of a goody good and all this stuff. It's just not a particularly great film. I don't really think it's that wonderful. And then we have She's All That, which is the one that stars Rachel Lee Cook and Freddie Prince Jr. And this one is about this nerdy girl. She's got like kind of a sort of rough family life. Like they're not rich or anything and they just barely make ends meet. And basically Freddie Prince's character just makes a bet with his friends that he can turn her into prom queen. And obviously she eventually finds out that he made this bet and they actually like had really started to like each other. So it's kind of like all this drama going on with that. But Honestly, it's kind of a stupid movie. I mean, basically, like, Rachel Lee Cook was, I don't know that she still is, I haven't seen her in a long time, but she was very beautiful, and that was even when she had glasses and a ponytail, and then all of a sudden they, like, 
take the glasses and the ponytail off and essentially just dub her prom queen worthy. And it's like, this is fucking idiotic. And last but not least, there is a parody movie of so many more of these teen movies than I can even fucking shake a stick at. It's called Not Another Teen Movie. It's one of my favorite parody movies of all time. It's got a lot of really funny scenes and moments and just overall mockings of these movies where there's just like really stupid concepts going on in them. And it basically just everybody in the movie is all in on this ridiculousness. And I mean, it's just so well done and well conveyed that they're making fun of what they're making fun of. And it's a terrific job that they did with this movie. So that leads us to The Breakfast Club, released on February 15th, 1985, written, directed, and produced by John Hughes, who also did Uncle Buck, previously covered on this podcast, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, previously covered on this podcast, as well as Plane Trains and Automobiles, which is a Solid one. It's not like my favorite of all time, but it's enjoyable to watch, I think. I mean, he's got so many great movies and he's written so many of them and it's just fucking terrific what he accomplished in his life. It's just fucking amazing. For the other producer, we have Ned Tannen and he did a lot of solid fucking movies like Smokey and the Bandit. I covered that on my blog. It's fucking great. Honestly, it somehow even made me kind of develop a crush on Sally Field, and I didn't know that was possible. He did American Graffiti, which was an early George Lucas movie, pre-Star Wars, and that one's fucking solid. I mean, it's kind of a teen movie. I'm kind of surprised it wasn't parodied by not another teen movie, but it was set in the 50s, I think. It was just really a solid overall movie. He also did Crocodile Dundee, And that one is just kind of like a caricature of a movie. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous and over the top, but it's kind of funny. I mean, it sounds like Paul Hogan is a bit of an egomaniac, but otherwise, I mean, it's fucking great. He also did Top Gun with Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer, and that one is pretty great too, honestly. And honestly, I don't love it as much as a lot of people love it, but... It's pretty solid, even with having Tom Cruise in it. And last but not least, we have National Lampoon's Animal House. And that one was solid. It was a funny movie. I mean, John Belushi is just hilarious anyway, so it's kind of hard to fuck that up. But I mean, it's it's a good overall movie. I really enjoy it. It's not one that I like. feel compelled to go back and revisit time and time again. I don't own it. I don't really know that it's gonna be the kind of movie that I'll find super funny over and over again, but it's it's good. For the score, we have composer Keith Forsey, and this movie is basically just known for the popular song Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds that is basically just the embodiment of this film in musical form. For the cast, we have Emilio Estevez, and he plays Andrew Clark. He was in the Mighty Ducks movies, and those ones were good when I was little, and I tried to revisit them, or at least the first one, and it was not good. It wasn't 
really anything special at all. He also did Maximum Overdrive, which is a notoriously bad movie, but it's kind of funny to watch, so it's not all bad. It's just really ridiculous. It's the only movie that Stephen King ever directed, and he wrote the story and all that stuff, and it's about these machines coming to life and essentially attacking people. It's as ridiculous as it sounds like it would be. He was also in Mission Impossible, the first one, and I really enjoy that movie. It's got a lot of solid aspects to it. It's not a wholly unflawed movie. A lot of it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, basically. I mean, that's kind of where I'm at with it, is it's like the plot is kind of ridiculous, and you can't exactly follow what's going on, because it seems like they probably edited a lot of the scenes out of it that might have explained and bridged the gap and things like that. And last but not least, he was in Free Jack, which is another bad movie, And then we have Anthony Michael Hall, whose real name is Michael Anthony Hall. He plays Brian Johnson. He was in The Dark Knight. He was like the news anchor in that movie. He was also in 16 Candles, and that one is one that I already kind of talked about. I mean, it's got Molly Ringwald in him, and it's just not overall very good, in my opinion. And he was also in Weird Science, and I I can't remember. Is that... I want to say... I can't remember who the fuck else is in that movie, but I just, I don't remember it at all. I mean, like it, basically I watched it not that long ago and it didn't really, you know, keep my attention, I guess. And it's just, it's one of those movies that gets talked about as being one of the great teen type movies of the 80s or I think it was the 80s. And it's just, I didn't think it was that good. Then we have Judd Nelson, who plays John Bender. He was in St. Elmo's Fire, and I need to know, please tell me if you see me or see one of my posts on social media, do I need to see St. Elmo's Fire? Because it's not very positively rated on IMDb, and I didn't look at Rotten Tomatoes for it, but it's just like, do I need to see it? I mean, there are some good people in it, but... I also don't really know what it's all about either. He was in New Jack City with Wesley Snipes. And honestly, I really don't remember New Jack City. I need to go back and revisit. I think I own it, but it's like I haven't seen it in so fucking long and I didn't make it a point to revisit it right when I bought it. And then he was in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which was previously covered on this podcast, and I really enjoy that movie. It's not overall amazing or anything, but it's a decent movie to watch. It's not bad. Then we have Molly Ringwald, who plays Claire Standish, and she was in 16 Candles, like I mentioned, and she was in Pretty in Pink, and I'm just not overall that impressed with Molly Ringwald. I don't really get why she was such a thing. Then we have Ali Sheedy, who plays Allison Reynolds, She was in War Games, which I don't remember. I think I've seen it, but I don't remember anything about it. I think it's got Matthew Broderick in it. I don't know how big Ali Sheedy's part was in that movie. It was kind of like, I seem to, for some reason, I'm thinking that she was not a major leading or even major supporting part, but I can't fucking remember, honestly. She was also in Short Circuit, and... God, I want to say Steve Gutenberg is in that movie, 
and it's about this robot that goes out of control, and it's just kind of a silly movie. It's not a bad movie, in my opinion. It's definitely not great or anything like that. And last but not least for the cast, we have Paul Gleason, who plays Vice Principal Richard Vernon, and he was in Die Hard, previously covered on this podcast, And I feel like I'm saying previously covered on this podcast a lot more lately, given that I've recorded more episodes and things like that. But he was honestly solid and diehard. I really liked him. I liked his character. He portrayed him well. And it was just a really all-around great performance by him. And the movie is obviously outstanding. It's probably the best action movie ever made. And he was also in Not Another Teen Movie. And he actually reprised his role essentially to parody himself in that movie you know he was parodying his character in the breakfast club in not another teen movie and it's pretty fucking hysterical i mean there's like this short little scene where they're in detention and he comes in and has this big rant and it's this back and forth with this kid and it's pretty fucking great. So for casting notes, John Hughes asked Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall to be in this movie at the end of production on 16 Candles. Robin Wright, Jodie Foster, Diane Lane, and Laura Dern all auditioned for the role of Claire Standish. Nicolas Cage was considered for the role of John Bender, John Cusack was originally cast in the part, but John Hughes felt that he wasn't threatening enough, which I kind of agree with. I love John Cusack, but I don't feel like he could be like a bully type, honestly. Rick Moranis was originally cast as the janitor, and that would have been a different spin on that character. The guy that plays the janitor is fine, but if Rick Moranis was in it, I don't know that it would have been the same character, honestly. It would have felt completely different. For a plot synopsis, we have five teenagers from different social statuses and backgrounds serve a Saturday in detention together that they will never forget. The tagline is fucking absurd. I mean, there were a few taglines, but I decided to pick the most ridiculous one. They were five total strangers with nothing in common meeting for the first time. A brain a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse. Before the day was over, they broke the rules, bared their souls, and touched each other in a way they never dreamed possible. That is way too fucking long, guys. I don't know who's writing these taglines, but you should not have a tagline that's more than like a sentence long. Alright, so let's just dive right into the fucking plot of this movie. Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds starts playing, and it's such an 80s song and will forever be synonymous with this movie. We get a David Bowie quote that goes like this, And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. And that appears after the credits, before we see anything or anyone on screen at all. It's from the song Changes, and that's a pretty solid one by David Bowie. He's got a lot of solid tunes, honestly. Anthony Michael Hall as Brian sets the stage that they're in Shermer, Illinois in 1984, and this is his essay that he was forced to write. He's explaining that he understands that they have to spend a Saturday in detention for whatever they did wrong, 
And we're seeing shots of different things around the school and getting all geared up for what has to be an exciting film. I mean, I'm joking. It's not really gearing you up for an exciting film when you're just seeing like random still shots of different places around the school with nobody in them. So he goes on to say that it's crazy to have them all write an essay explaining who they think they are because the vice principal will only ever see the kids like he wants to see them and he doesn't realistically care. Claire, played by Molly Ringwald, is clearly wealthy and is being dropped off at school by her rich douchebag dad. I know all of this about her dad because he's driving a fucking BMW and I've never met nor heard of an owner of one of those cars that didn't fit that description. But her dad doesn't seem particularly pissed about this situation with Claire going to detention, and she's annoyed that he can't just get her out of it. But it's such a rich girl thing to whine about. It's like, basically, she acts like she shouldn't have to accept her punishment for what she's done. In the car with Brian and his mom, however, his mom is decidedly much more displeased by the situation and wants him to use the time to study. But the thing is that they're not allowed to study. They're just supposed to chill in the library all day and presumably write this essay. And I mean, I get it. They're being punished. But if they're stuck doing regular schoolwork, that also feels like a punishment. Neat tidbit on that, Anthony Michael Hall's mother, Mercedes Hall, and his younger sister, Mary Christian, played his character's mother and sister in the movie. Andrew, as played by Emilio Estevez, is just kind of getting a talking to about how his dad used to do stuff like Andrew got in trouble for, and he didn't get caught. That's kind of what the dad is conveying to him. He's not saying that he shouldn't do these things that he did, It's just that he shouldn't get caught doing them. And that's like he's saying, yeah, you've got to face the music now. So his dad is primarily concerned with him putting his chance for getting a scholarship at risk. And that's probably sensible to be worried about. Because even though college was way cheaper in the 80s, it still cost a decent amount of money. Ali Sheedy plays Allison, whose parents just drop her off and she doesn't get a scolding or a pep talk or anything at all. And they just kind of leave her to her day. To be clear, her character doesn't talk much at all for large portions of this movie. And, I mean, essentially the first half, she's not, like, saying anything even a little bit. Bender, as played by Judd Nelson, comes into the library where the characters have gathered and makes himself right at home and puts his feet on one chair while sitting in another chair. And it's... Such a fucking I'm a cool kid thing to do, honestly. We don't get to see Bender getting dropped off, and that's pretty significant in regard to what kind of life he has. You just kind of know his parents don't really give a shit about him. Then, Vice Principal Richard Vernon, played by Paul Gleason, waltzes into the library and addresses the group very smugly and tells Bender to get his feet off the chair. This is honestly an iconic character, and to me, he's the one you remember the most when this movie's done, in my opinion. Claire says she doesn't think she belongs in there based on what the other kids look like, because Claire's a total stuck-up, rich cunt type, and thinks that she's a little bit better than everybody else. Vernon gives them their essay assignment and tells them not to move from their seats and not to sleep, but if I recall correctly, he doesn't say anything about talking. Bender makes a hilarious joke asking Vernon if Barry Manilow knows that he raids his wardrobe, and Vernon gives him another Saturday of detention for 
the following weekend. Vernon has this great line where he says, don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. And honestly, I just, I don't know why it's so memorable to me, but when Vernon leaves the room, Allison begins biting her nails and everyone turns to glare at her like anyone would give a shit at all that she's doing this. Girls like her, people just have a tendency to actively ignore them, especially in high school. It's not like they'd give her the time of day at all to even care that she was making a little noise biting her nails. What annoys me most is they added an overly loud sound effect for the nail biting that sounds like someone is taking a coin between their finger and thumb and thudding it on a wooden table or something, and it just does not sound like it's it's just too loud, basically. So Vernon keeps looking into the library from his office and is trying to catch them getting out of line. Brian tries to chat with Bender, but Bender obviously thinks he's better than him or something. Bender then brings up the question of what he's supposed to do when he has to piss, so he unzips and starts pretending to pee while seated at his table still. And I will say, especially with Bender, they kind of nail the whole things douchebag high schoolers find funny thing pretty fucking well. So Andrew threatens to beat Bender up if he actually pisses on the floor, but Bender is Mr. Cool and acts like he doesn't care about that, and tells Andrew that he's sexy when he's angry. Bender then makes another hilarious comment, suggesting that they shut the door and impregnate Claire, because who doesn't like a good joke where you suggest that you're gonna rape somebody? Andrew is getting pretty fired up over Bender's comments, and Claire explains that Bender's just looking to get a rise out of him, and that Andrew should essentially just ignore him. Bender continues the antagonistic behavior toward Andrew and Claire, by asking if they're dating, and suggests that they might be fucking, and this really fucking sets them off. And I don't know, it seems like they're kind of right for each other though, and also don't be a fucking uptight bitch ass when someone makes these comments about consented fucking to you. Like, it's not that big of a deal, and you just said that you should ignore him, so you should probably fucking try that. What really bugs me is Vernon is sitting in his office telling them to keep it down and he's wearing his reading glasses so they're like tilted way up and the earpieces are like two inches from his fucking ears. Like they're not resting on his ears even a little bit. So Bender suggests that they close the door so Vernon can't watch them and Andrew really says some hurtful things to him about how he doesn't matter and how he could disappear forever and no one would notice or care. I mean, realistically, Bender should probably drop out of school with the way things are going, and he's clearly old enough to do so. Claire suggests that Bender is a coward because he hasn't joined any of the school's social clubs, and an argument breaks out about how they're all in different clubs. Basically, it's clear that they're all from different social cliques and would never even consider joining one another's clubs at all. And also, I don't remember any of the cool kids being in clubs in school, but maybe they were, and I didn't know it because I wasn't in them or aware of them. Bender closes the door by removing the screw that it's held open by, and Vernon hears the kids yelling at each other on the other side of the door. So he comes in to yell at them, and he has Andrew help him try to hold open the door with a magazine rack, but Bender points out that it's a fire hazard, so Vernon just tells Andrew to help him move it back, and he also kind of blames Andrew for that, which is 
a really nice touch. Vernon tells Bender that the next screw that falls out is going to be him. Bender mumbles, eat my shorts. And I don't understand this as being a put down that ever became popular. It's not particularly clever or funny. It's just kind of stupid. Anyway, there's this big back and forth where Vernon keeps giving Bender additional days of detention. And Bender basically just keeps on asking for more and doesn't know when to fucking quit. He ends up with two more months every Saturday for eight weeks. My question is, why doesn't Vernon just set up shop in the library and really keep an eye on them and keep them from doing all of the shit that they're ultimately going to be doing in there? The answer to that would be that we wouldn't have a movie at all if these kids were watched closely like that, so essentially that's probably why Vernon doesn't move into the library like he should. Another thing I've been meaning to mention is, even when I was of proper age and I first watched this movie... I never got the appeal of Molly Ringwald. I just never thought she'd earned her level of it girl status in the 80s like she did, as I mentioned earlier. But it's also important to note that I don't think she was particularly good looking. Like, she's not ugly, but she's also not drop-dead gorgeous or anything like that, like people act like. When I was in high school, there were honestly dozens upon dozens of girls that were better looking than her, And they didn't seem like uptight, whiny brats like her characters come off as. And she somehow just became a pretty big fucking celebrity with these roles, and I don't get it. We get a little sequence of everyone dicking around, and if they weren't already short on runtime, they could have easily just cut this shit right the fuck out. So they end up looking like they've fallen asleep, and Vernon comes to ask if anyone needs to use the lavatory, and they all continue pretending to be asleep but they raise their hands, and I guess it's a little funny. And I guess Vernon just decided that even though they were all sleeping when he said that they couldn't, he just doesn't really give a shit and won't give them more detention for it. Sometime later, Andrew asks Claire if she has plans after detention, and she says she can't because of this whole thing with her parents using her to get back at each other and basically being on the brink of divorce. Then Bender asks Claire who she likes better of the two of her parents, and she says she doesn't know, and if she had a choice, she'd live with her brother, who is presumably grown up. Then Bender asks Andrew a similar question about his parents, and they get in each other's faces, and Brian tries to break them up, but they don't like that even a little bit. Brian says he doesn't like his parents either, but Bender says Brian is a parent's wet dream. Bender redirects his sights to Claire and suggests that she will become fat when she gets older, and he points out how there are people who were born fat, and then there are people who were thin and became fat. And he's honestly spot on. Those are the two types of fat people that you can be, but it's also very obvious that those are the only two options because... What else would there be, honestly? Anyway, Bender explains that she'll shit out a few kids and everything will go to hell for her appearance-wise. And this is just Bender's antagonistic personality really showing that he is a big bag of shit. Bender asks Claire if she's a virgin and what her experiences short of sex are. Andrew tells Bender to leave Claire alone and they get in each other's faces again. Andrew says that it'll be two hits, him hitting Bender and Bender hitting the floor, and that's such a cliche pre-fight thing to say to somebody, honestly. You see, 
Andrew is a wrestler, and he's confident about his ability to take people down, and so that's kind of why he has this toughness about him. Andrew gets Bender in a hold on the floor, and it becomes clear that Andrew, despite being smaller, could probably take Bender in a fight, and Bender kind of backs down and suggests that he'd kill Andrew, and then he'd get sued by his parents, so He wouldn't do it because of that. We get a sequence where all the kids are whistling with each other, and it's kind of initiated by Bender. And honestly, at the very least, based on the exchanges Andrew and Claire have had with him, they would not humor Bender when he fucking starts the whistling thing. I don't buy it even a little bit. So it's lunchtime, and Andrew and Allison get tasked with getting soft drinks from the teacher's lounge. They talk about what Andrew did to get detention, but we don't really hear the actual story just yet. He explains kind of what things are going on in his life, but he doesn't actually explain the incident in question. So back in the library, Bender teases by asking Claire if she'd ever date a guy like Brian. Bender asks Brian if he's ever gotten laid, and he says that he has lots of times, but when Bender asks him to name one time... He explains that the girl in question lives in Canada. Were those kids that said that they had a boyfriend or girlfriend that lived elsewhere or went to another school ever for real? Or was that always made up? Because it always felt really made up. Bender presses Brian about his sexual experiences and Brian motions to Claire, who is looking away, and he clearly wants Bender to shut the fuck up about it and just stop with the line of questioning. After some back and forth, it's revealed that Brian didn't want to make Claire aware that he's a virgin. Claire says that she thinks it's okay for a guy to be a virgin, but also she wouldn't give a fuck if a guy like Brian got ass on the regular. Despite what I've said, I do want to let it be known that Brian could never get Claire ever, and she wouldn't even consider him. Like, she wouldn't be caught dead getting involved with him even a little. Like, Molly Ringwald is not upper echelon hottie status at all, but she's way out of Anthony Michael Hall's league without question. They eat lunch, and Claire has sushi, and Andrew starts unloading his deliberately over-the-top lunch that I guess a wrestler might eat because they need a lot of calories because they expend a lot of energy. Expend, is that the word I want? Fuck if I know, who gives a shit? But it looks like Andrew actually has like a full bag of Lay's potato chips. And maybe this wasn't coached back then, but I'm pretty sure that he shouldn't eat that kind of shit. Like that's fucking greasy and gross. I mean, just no, you you should not be eating that if you're an athlete. Allison makes a sandwich out of pixie sticks and Captain Crunch on white bread. Brian has a very standard lunch, and Bender doesn't really have a lunch, so he begins mockingly acting out what he assumes Brian's home life to be. Then Andrew asks what Bender's home life is like, and Bender paints a picture of a very abusive household, both verbally and physically. And we get this long music buildup as he's talking that kind of feels cheesy to me, but most of the scoring we hear in this movie seems to be that way, honestly. Andrew says that he thinks that's all bullshit, and Bender's just trying to make that his image. The five of them decide to sneak out of the library and roam the halls while Vernon is away. 
Call me a pussy if you want, but I'd stay back and not risk getting more detention. I really don't need to have multiple Saturdays of detention at all. Bender gets a bag of weed from his locker, and none of them are on board with the super hardcore drug usage in this moment. We get a little sequence with the kids running in the halls and avoiding Vernon when they see him, and they come to a locked gate, which ends their journey, basically. Bender decides that he's going to be the one to take the rap and distract Vernon so the other kids can get back to the library and not get found out. Vernon catches Bender, who is yelling all the way down the halls, and ends up playing basketball in the gym. Bender and Vernon come back to find the other kids in the library, and Vernon reveals that Bender originally got this day of detention for setting a false alarm at school, I mean, he must have just, like, pulled the fire alarm or something when there was no fire. Things get really heated, and Vernon starts to get pretty mean and antagonizes Bender and suggests that he's gonna wind up in prison soon. Then, Vernon takes Bender to a storage closet and gets in his face and suggests that they fight each other to find out how tough Bender really is. As soon as Vernon leaves, Bender opens a ceiling tile and begins crawling in the drop ceiling. Here's a very obvious thing that I'm going to point out about that. Drop ceilings wouldn't support Bender or anybody in the building's weight if they were crawling on top of the tiles. Anybody who knows jack shit about ceiling tiles and the structure that supports them would know that they couldn't possibly withstand that much weight. Also, Bender is wearing those fingerless leather gloves that have become synonymous with certain tough guys in movies. Eventually, Bender falls through the ceiling in the library, and it's good that they had that happen, but I can't stress it enough that it would have happened immediately, and he would have probably been hurt, but he doesn't really act like he's hurt. Vernon charges in and demands to know what the ruckus of Bender falling through the ceiling was all about, he was in the bathroom when it happened, you see, so he didn't really get a firm grasp on what kind of noise it was. Bender is revealed to be hiding under Clara and Andrew's table while Vernon is asking them about the ruckus. He moves over near Claire and looks between her legs up her skirt and he can see her underwear and she squeezes Bender in between her legs and it makes this crushing sound and... Bender just cries out in agony, and I'm like, I'm not really fucking buying that that was able to inflict any pain. I don't think that Claire would be that strong. I just, I'm sorry, I'm not, I can't get there. Fun thing about that, and this is something I didn't see in the trivia, but I'm going to assume that it's fact. Those legs and that underwear did not belong to Molly Ringwald, as she was a minor and no one could have gotten away with not using a double in that situation. The other kids keep making noises to cover for Bender when he makes noises, and I feel like Vernon could have easily figured out what was going on in that moment. So after Vernon leaves, Bender and the gang go up to smoke a doobie in what I guess you might call the library mezzanine or balcony or something. Brian seemingly starts off the weed-smoking festivities and is immediately baked, of course. Claire takes a hit and is naturally instantly high, too, and she says, Do you know how popular I am? I am so popular. Everybody loves me so much at this school. And it's like, Claire, is that really the first thing you have to say when you get high? 
some conceited preppy girl bullshit that I guarantee no one wants to hear. So Andrew, who was the last to tag along for getting stoned, is literally hotboxing an office in the library and decides to start dancing around and getting all amped up and stuff. Maybe I didn't smoke the right kind of weed in high school, but I don't remember ever getting the urge to run around dancing like Kevin Bacon and Footloose, previously covered on this podcast. I guess I could see if you smoke just a little bit and it just took the edge off, but to be totally high, I didn't want to be moving around that much, even a little bit. Andrew goes back into the hotbox office and the glass in the door shatters and literally no one reacts to it. Fun fact, John Hughes later said that his biggest regret about this film was using the breaking glass effect during the marijuana scene. Vernon didn't hear the glass break because he's looking at confidential files that he's not supposed to be getting into, and the janitor Carl catches him and wants hush money from Vernon so as to not tell on him. Meanwhile, Allison reveals that she knows a bunch of Brian's personal information because she stole his wallet, Then Claire and Bender are off talking, and she finds pictures of a bunch of girls that he has. Back with Allison, Brian, and Andrew. Andrew is giving Brian shit for having a terrible fake ID and wants to know why he even has one, and Brian said that it's so he can vote. Allison offers to empty her bag out, but the guys are not really interested, so she empties it anyway, and she talks about having an unsatisfying home life, and they ascertain that maybe her home life is just more unsatisfying than theirs. She storms off, and Andrew goes after her and tries to talk to her. Things get very emotional between the two of them. Then back with Vernon and Carl, they talk about how Vernon thinks that the kids have gotten way worse than they used to be. But Carl says that's bullshit, and that when Vernon was a kid, he would have thought the same thing of a guy like him. So Claire and Andrew are talking, and it leads to Allison talking about paying to screw her therapist. Then it turns back around on Claire, who acts disgusted, and they all press her about whether or not she's had sex. Then, when she says she hasn't, Allison confesses that she made up the story about screwing her shrink. Claire is, of course, pissed that she revealed something about herself as a result of Allison's lie, Then, Andrew tells the tale of how he got detention by hazing some kid by taping his butt cheeks together, and how when the tape was removed, it pulled out some hair and even removed some skin. But what the fuck kind of tape did you use, Andrew? And why the fuck did you have it with you at school? I can't think of any kind of tape that would be that strong after that short of a time being adhered to something. Andrew says that he did it for his dad because his dad was always doing some shit like that when he was his age. The story goes on to reveal how the hazing incident went down and how Andrew felt terrible about it and how humiliated the kid must have been to have to go home and tell his parents what happened. So Andrew gets pretty emotional about the whole thing and I've got to say up until this, I had thought Emilio Estevez's acting was fine, but... At the height of the emotional story, I really thought he kinda sucked. Then, Brian shares how he got an F in shop class for not being able to make a functioning lamp. That leads to everybody sharing what they are good at, and Bender presses Claire to reveal what she's good at. So she shows that she can put a thing of lipstick in her cleavage, and then lean her head down 
and apply the lipstick. And honestly, I've got to say, I wouldn't even consider saying that that was a thing I was good at, even if I could do it. It's just not that impressive or cool. Bender mocks Claire for being such a privileged rich girl, which she is, but Bender is a total douche in a vast majority of this film. Brian asks about whether or not they'll still be friends like this when they go back to school on Monday, and I think he knows what'll happen, but he's asking anyway. Claire answers honestly and tells him that they won't be, and that if her or Andrew saw Brian in front of their friends, they might act nice and then make fun of him when he leaves. Bender gets in a heated shouting match with Claire for her being a total bitch. Brian calls Claire conceited and criticizes her for going along with what her friends pressure her to do. So she makes it seem like the pressure is immense and basically suggests that Brian has no idea how it all works, but it's pretty clear that he does have some idea. Then Brian reveals that he's in detention because a teacher found a gun in his locker and it's clear that he planned to use the gun to kill himself. And that gets you expelled and in legal trouble nowadays. I don't know how bad it would have been in 84, but presumably weapons were still not allowed in schools. My question is, why would Brian bring a gun into school to kill himself? I mean, was he hoping to get attention for it? Was he planning to kill other people too? I don't know. Allison then reveals that she's in detention because she didn't have anything better to do with her Saturday and they all laugh at her pretty hard. I've never really had a life for the most part, and I never would have fucking set foot on school property on a Saturday, much less attend detention out of boredom. This detention session has gone completely off the reservation, and Vernon hasn't even seemingly thought to check on them, as they're now playing fucking music and dancing and shit. Little trivia there, originally only Claire was supposed to dance, but Molly Ringwald felt uncomfortable dancing alone, so John Hughes had the entire cast dance. Ringwald has said that she regrets this because not only did she think her dancing was bad, her inability to do the dance solo led to the artifice of the MTV-type choreographed dancing, which she feels hurt the movie. And I want to be clear... In the 80s, they most definitely had access to good songs, even from that decade, and they clearly cheaped out and didn't go for anything good in this movie. Things wind down, and Bender goes crawling on the ceiling tiles again to get back to the storage room. Claire convinces Brian to write the essay they are supposed to have done, and I guess they're just seemingly going to get away with the group turning in one paper for all of them, instead of each writing one like they're supposed to, and there's just not going to be any consequences for that at all. Claire puts some makeup on Allison to turn her into a basic bitch, and I guess Allison and Andrew are going to get involved romantically, and oh, so are Claire and Bender. How nice, but why? Why would that have happened? I don't really understand it. All of the parents come to pick up the kids when detention's over, Andrew and Allison kiss a bunch, and so do Claire and Bender. It seems pretty clear that Andrew only likes Allison when she's pretending to look unlike she normally does, and I don't really see their relationship going anywhere from here. Bender is given Claire's earring, and when she rides off, he puts it in his ear, 
this relationship would be unbelievably toxic and would also not go fucking anywhere, just like Andrew and Allison. This is the essay that Brian writes, and don't worry, it won't take me very long to say, Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions, but what we found out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case, a princess and a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. I've got to say, Vernon didn't really explain how long the essay needed to be, but that's barely a paragraph, Brian. Let's step it up a notch. You could have written a little more than that. Honestly, and maybe I missed something and maybe I'm just fucking dumb, but why The Breakfast Club? Why is that the thing they decide to call themselves? I don't understand it. So for praise in this movie, the performances are mostly pretty good and believable, It's remarkable that they were able to make this into an entire movie, and it doesn't really feel like it's flimsy, I guess. I mean, it is a little bit, but not severely so. The pace is actually very good, considering that if you heard the basic premise, you would think it would be very slow. For criticism, they kind of suspend believability given what these kids get away with doing in this movie. They would have gotten caught so fucking many times. Vernon should have walked in on them smoking weed or whatever. I'm just not buying it. So for trivia, the scene in which all characters sit in a circle on the floor in the library and tell stories about what they were in detention for was not scripted. Writer and director John Hughes told them to ad-lib. Judd Nelson, who plays John Bender, stayed in character off-camera even bullying Molly Ringwald. John Hughes nearly fired him over this, but Paul Gleason, who played Vernon, defended Nelson, saying that he was a good actor and he was just trying to get into character. Judd Nelson improvised the part at the closing of the film where Bender raises his fist in defiance. He was supposed to just walk into the sunset, so to speak, and John Hughes asked him to play around with a few actions. When he was done and they were finishing up, Nelson threw his fist up without running it by anybody. Everyone loved it, and it also has become an iconic symbol of the 1980s as well as cinema history. John Hughes wrote the screenplay to this movie in just two days. The David Bowie quote at the beginning of the movie is pulled from his song Changes. It can be found on his 1971 album Hunky Dory. Ali Sheedy, who played Allison, suggested the quote to John Hughes, who liked it and thus included it in the opening. The dandruff that Allison shakes onto her pencil drawing for snow was achieved by sprinkling Parmesan cheese. Actress Ali Sheedy did not actually use her real dandruff, as she is often accused of doing. She did, however, really eat the sandwich filled with pixie stick dust and unrefined sugar, just as it looks like in the movie. It was originally suggested that there would be several sequels to this movie, occurring every 10 years, in which The Breakfast Club would get back together. This did not come to pass due to the volatile relationship between John Hughes and Judd Nelson. 
Hughes stated that he would never work with Nelson again. Bender's flinch when Vernon fakes a punch was genuine. Judd Nelson really thought Paul Gleason was going to hit him. The ages of everyone in the principal cast at the time of filming are Judd Nelson, 25 years old, Molly Ringwald, 16 years old, Emilio Estevez, 23 years old, Anthony Michael Hall, 16 years old, and Ali Sheedy, 23 years old. So only Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall were actually of high school age. Alright, on to info and ratings. We have a runtime of 97 minutes. This movie is rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, $1 million. Opening weekend, $5.1 million. Worldwide gross, $51.5 million. IMDb rating, 7.8. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 89%. Rotten Tomato audience score, 92%. Personal rating, 4 out of 5 stars. I just, I think that there's a lot missing in this movie. I think that it's wholly unrealistic in a lot of moments. So that's just, I can't get on board with a lot of the things that happen. So that's my only reason for grading it like that. So next up, we have Dazed and Confused, which was released on September 24th, 1993. Written, directed, and produced by Richard Linklater. He did the Before Trilogy, and I really fucking love the Before Trilogy. It's super realistic, a lot of ad-libbing, very simplistic. I just really like it. It's got, I think her name's Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke in it. Fucking great, honestly. He also did School of Rock, which does not, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but it doesn't seem like his kind of movie It seems a little more like, I don't know how to explain it. It's just bizarre. I don't feel like it seems on brand for him. He also did A Scanner Darkly, which was previously covered on this podcast, and I didn't really think that was overly good. I probably won't ever watch it again. For the other producers, we have Sean Daniel and James Jacks. For the score slash soundtrack, there is... Basically no score in this movie at all. There is just soundtrack, and it is an amazing soundtrack. It's got, I'm going to list quite a few songs here, but I just, I want to like really stress how great it is and how many songs there are that you'll probably know. Starting with Slow Ride by Foghat, School's Out by Alice Cooper, Tush by ZZ Top, Love Hurts by Nazareth, Stranglehold by Ted Nugent, Lowrider by War, Tuesday's Gone by Leonard Skinnerd, Rock and Roll All Night by Kiss, Paranoid by Black Sabbath, and Hurricane by Bob Dylan. For the cast, we have Jason London, who plays Randall Pink Floyd. He was in Out Cold, which is actually a pretty decent comedy. I mean, it's not like an all-time favorite, but it's enjoyable to throw on and watch every once in a while. Then we have Joey Lauren Adams, who played Simone Kerr, and she was in a few Kevin Smith movies. I like her. She's pretty solid. She was also in Big Daddy with Adam Sandler, and that one is a pretty solid movie, too. I really enjoyed it. It was one of Sandler's last good comedies. Then we have Mila Jovovich, and if you're wondering, Brandon, why did you pronounce it like that? I'll just say that it's because Mila Jovovich is the way she pronounces it. 
And I learned that in the beginning of a really mediocre movie called The Fourth Kind, where she kind of has like this pre-movie introduction and explains what the movie's all about. But she says Mila Jovovich, and everybody says Mila Jovovich, and that's clearly just not what it is. Anyway, she was in the Resident Evil movies, which honestly, I could go my entire life without seeing any more of those or seeing the ones I've seen again. They weren't like truly awful. They were just so mediocre that they didn't do anything for me. She was in Ultraviolet, which is a notoriously bad fucking movie, but she looks really fucking good in it, honestly. Like, super fucking attractive. And she was also, as I mentioned, in The Fourth Kind, which is just not a great movie at all. Then we have Adam Goldberg, who plays Mike Newhouse, and he was in Saving Private Ryan, And that one is solid. I've talked about it before, so I won't really get into it right now. He also played an aggressive and insane roommate. I want to say he was Chandler's roommate on Friends, and he was just really, really ridiculous. Like, he put a Pepperidge Farm goldfish in their fish tank. Just weird shit. Then we have Ben Affleck, who played Fred O'Banion, and he was in School Ties, which I need to figure out if I need to watch that movie because there's a lot of really good actors in it that were in it before they were really famous. He was in some Kevin Smith movies, especially earlier ones, and he's been making appearances in some of the other ones as well. He was in The Sum of All Fears, and I want to say that's a Jack Ryan movie. Like, he plays Jack Ryan in it. I've never seen it. I've never heard anything overly great about it. He was also in Smoke and Aces, which is solid. It's one of those big ensemble cast type movies, but it's very interesting. It's a cool story. I know it's not considered a super great movie by everybody, but I like it. Then we have Parker Posey, who I have noted here is hot, and she played Darla Marks, and she was in Superman Returns, previously covered on this podcast. That one is fucking terrible, and it's unfortunate that her talents kind of went to waste on that whole movie. I just didn't think it was very good. She was also in Blade Trinity, which is another one that is just terrible, truly awful, and same way with she was in Scream 3. All of these fucking movies are not good at best. Then, of course, there's Matthew McConaughey, and he plays David Wooderson, And he was in Angels in the Outfield, which I remember vaguely. I remember him being in it, and it would have been when he was about as young as this movie. I can't really remember what year that came out. He was in The Wedding Planner, which is a chick flick. I mean, it's just Jennifer Lopez and him, and it's just kind of, I don't know, it's, it's not great. He was in Dallas Buyers Club, and that one he won an Oscar for. And then there's Serenity, which is the one where he's a fisherman and they have a big plot twist reveal that comes like halfway through the fucking movie. It It's like, do you not understand how twists work? I mean, it was really a bad movie. It was not good. And then last but not least, we have Renee Zellweger who plays Nessie White. And she is one of the characters in this movie that it's like you blink and you miss her. She really wasn't famous by the time this movie came out, and she doesn't have anything close to a major role. She could have probably been billed as an extra. I don't even remember seeing her on screen. I mean, just 
holy shit. So she was also in Chicago, which I'll probably never see because it's probably not my kind of movie. She was in Me, Myself, and Irene, which I reviewed for my blog, and I like that one. It's kind of not stood the test of time super well, but it's still decent. And she was also in Jerry Maguire, where she said the line, you had me at hello. For casting notes, Renee Zellweger has a non-speaking role in this film, but was considered early on for the part of Darla, which ultimately went to Parker Posey. There you go. She doesn't even fucking have a speaking part in this movie. She's probably not on screen very much at all either. Mark Ruffalo, Hilary Swank, Will Wheaton, Mackenzie Aston, Jared Leto, Elizabeth Berkeley, Denise Richards, Vince Vaughn, Alicia Silverstone, Ashley Judd, Brendan Fraser, John Favreau, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Mira Sorvino, Reese Witherspoon, Ron Livingston, and Kirsten Dunst all auditioned for roles in this film. Okay, so this is the IMDb plot synopsis. The adventures of high school and junior high students on the last day of school in May of 1976. That's it. That's the most I would be able to come up with, honestly. Now, this movie is one that definitely did not skimp on the soundtrack like The Breakfast Club did. Fun fact about that. Already, Brandon? Really? It's your first fucking note. Yeah, we're fucking doing this. Okay, so reportedly one-sixth of the budget was spent on acquiring the rights to 1970s pop hits on the soundtrack. The first song is Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith, and honestly, that might be one of the easiest songs to fucking vibe out to. It's so fucking soothing. We see different groups of kids around a high school doing different things, hanging out and whatnot. Oh right, I should probably mention that this movie is definitely set in May of 1976, as the plot synopsis said. One kid is making a cricket bat in shop class to use for paddling soon-to-be freshmen because freshman hazing rituals are a major part of this film's quote-unquote plot. I put plot in quotes because this movie is kind of like a P.T. Anderson movie in that it doesn't seem to have a large connective plot and essentially it's just a collection of watchable events or short stories. I would say... More significantly, it does not have a plot than the average P.T. Anderson movie because I do still feel like P.T. Anderson has plots in his movies. So Pink, a.k.a. Randy, as played by Jason London, is talking to who I guess is his girlfriend, Simone, and he's telling her that he's going to meet her at a party later that night because he's going to be caught up hanging with his friends and whatnot. I'm going to refer to him as Pink instead of Randy throughout the remainder of this episode. Simone says whatever to Pink, and I would have thought that she meant that she was pissed by that if I had heard anybody presented any other way, but she just kind of says it like whatever, like that's cool. But I mean, she's either not mad or not doing a good job of conveying even passive aggressive anger because it seems like saying whatever in this situation would mean fuck off, essentially. But I'm not good with women, so who knows. Pink goes with some friends to head inside the school, and we meet Slater, who is what I would call a maximum stoner. Then Pink sees what I gather are his nerdier friends that he plays poker with sometimes. 
Their character names are Mike, Tony, and Cynthia, and it took me forever to figure out what the girl Cynthia's name was. I barely remember any of this movie, but I will say that my initial impressions during this viewing is these actors all seem like very 90s people making themselves out to be 70s people, and that's just because I also know them from other stuff that was predominantly in the 90s as well. I took forever writing notes on this because it's basically an ensemble cast and I don't even know most of the actors' names, let alone their character names. I had to go back and add the names into my notes after the fact. That was kind of what I was dealing with. These nerdy guys, Mike and Tony, talk and Tony shares a story about a dream where he was having sex with someone who had an amazing female body but had the head of Abraham Lincoln And for those of you who are hoping I might not make a Wayne's World reference here, that is the definition of Abraham Lincoln. So Mike and Tony agree that it's best not to talk too much about Tony's dream and they leave it be. One of the few characters who actually looks like he truly belongs in the 70s is this guy named Don, and I personally absolutely love his personality. Don brings a letter to Pink from their football coach, and it seems that the coach wants the players to sign and return the letter by the end of the day. The letter is essentially a contract saying that the players must vow not to do drugs or illegal things ever to be a part of the team. Pink lets Tony, Mike, and Cynthia read the contract, and they mock it pretty heavily and criticize it and can't believe the players are actually signing it. Pink and the boys are off to go paddle some 8th graders, and I really can't wrap my head around this ritual at all. Like, they're hunting these new freshmen down and beating them with paddles to initiate them, and it's so fucking weird. Anyway, this girl asks them to go easy on her brother Mitch, which naturally makes them want to get him the worst. So, great job there, big sister. So they go to the middle school and get on a megaphone, and tell all the kids that if they come out after school and take their ass paddling, they'll only give them one lick. But if they don't come out and take it like men, they'll be relentless and chase them down all summer. So Pink and the boys meet their coach outside, and he stresses the importance of the contract to Pink, since he hasn't signed it yet, and it seems like everybody else has. Then, this other coach warns Pink about needing an attitude adjustment, and to stop hanging out with burnouts, and he really lays down the law. These coaches seem like real pieces of shit to me. Truly fucking awful human beings. Then we meet O'Banion, who is played by Ben Affleck, and I must say, he plays an astoundingly great douchebag in this. Pink and Dan are talking about how they get ass because they're on the football team. Then they stop outside of a classroom, and Don makes lewd remarks and gestures to a girl in the class, but she finds it funny, so it's okay. Eventually, the hot teacher comes and breaks it up, and then Don hits on her as well, and she politely turns him down by patting him on the head and sending him on his way. Mitch and his friends try and get their teacher to let them out early to avoid their beating, but he doesn't go for it. So, school is out for summer, according to Alice Cooper, and all the 8th graders are fleeing the coming onslaught, Mitch and his friends are trying to get away from O'Banion and company, and this kid that is driving them looks like he's roughly seven fucking years old. Mitch and his friend Carl get dropped off at Carl's house, and O'Banion catches them before they can get inside. 
Just as he's about to give them their licks, Carl's mom emerges from the front door with a shotgun to stop it from happening, and naturally, this only serves to piss off O'Banion. As weird as what the men are doing to new freshmen is, the women seem to have a next-level thing going on here. They've got the girls sucking on pacifiers and doing that thing where you're standing up and then you have to get flat on your stomach as fast as you can possibly do it and then stand up again and do it over again, over and over. Tony and Mike are hanging out near where the girls are doing this and they're discussing how truly bizarre this whole thing is and how school officials seemingly turn a blind eye to it. Then the seniors start squirting ketchup and mustard on the girls lying on the ground and they put flour or powdered sugar or whatever it is on them too, followed by eggs and then it's like, man, I would have been the first person to take a paddling as opposed to this shit. This movie truly has an amazing soundtrack, guys. I can't stress it enough. It's like one great song after another. All of these fucking 70s hits, I just love it. They bring one of the girls over to Don to make her propose to him, and of course he has to make sexual remarks and stuff and give her a hard time. One of the girls proposes to Tony, and he quickly lets her out of what she's doing and asks her why she'd subject herself to this treatment. But one of the senior girls comes and gets her to take her back to the hazing. Then they take the girls through a car wash in the backs of trucks to sort of clean them off, but it doesn't really do the trick, so they still look gross. O'Banion tells Pink and company what happened to him with the shotgun, and they can't believe it, and I can't really believe it either. I just feel like it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Pink goes to this guy Kevin's house, and his parents are going away, and he's having a party. So the guys are chatting with Kevin's mom, and they're leaving to go on a trip. Fun fact, Sean Andrews, who played Kevin, and Jason London, who played Pink, did not get along during filming. At one point, Richard Linklater had to break up a fight between them. It changed the ending, which was going to feature Kevin instead of Matthew McConaughey's character. It also explains their almost total lack of dialogue despite sharing several scenes. Suddenly, while they're hanging out in Kevin's room, the parents come to his door, and apparently a man delivering kegs for the party decided to come early, and Kevin has to get him to say that he went to the wrong house. Kevin's parents clearly realize what's going on, and the dad tells the mom to unpack and... They're not fucking going anywhere, and the party is canceled. Mitch is pitching at a baseball game, and O'Banion and company have come to give him his overdue paddling, and he's obviously nervous about it. This kid that plays Mitch, I don't remember ever seeing him in anything else. Apparently, the only other movie that he's in that I would have heard of is The Faculty, but I don't think I ever saw that. And now he's like a game designer, but I don't know if he's like a board game designer or a video game designer. We get a paddling of Mitch scene where they do the thing where they mute the scene's actual audio and just play No More Mr. Nice Guy by Alice Cooper. But O'Banion is clearly way too fucking into this paddling nonsense. Like, no one should enjoy it this much, and of course he's still extra pissed about getting a shotgun pulled on him, so he's going even harder on Mitch. And... It's also important to note that I think it's like the story is O'Banion's character got held back so he got to do this as a senior two years in a row and everybody's fucking pissy about it. 
So Pink gives Mitch a ride home after the paddling, and they talk, of course, and Pink's driving an El Camino, and man, I fucking wish Chevy would come out with a new El Camino. That'd be fucking great if it was done right. So Pink invites Mitch to come along and hang out with them that night, and he says that it'd be pretty cool of him to do that after getting whooped on. So Parker Posey plays such a total bitch in this movie. It's fucking great. She's basically leading the girl hazing rituals. I cannot stress this enough. I do not like the song Lowrider by War even a little bit. It's like I hear it come on and it's fucking nails on a chalkboard every time. Mike is in the car with Tony and Cynthia and he confesses that he doesn't want to become a lawyer like he originally thought because he's generally not a big fan of people, which is totally reasonable. Then, we finally meet the man of the hour, Matthew McConaughey, who plays David Wooderson, and I'm gonna call him Dave. I couldn't get a firm grasp of what they're actually calling him. Like, I think maybe they call him Wooderson, but I can't really say for sure. But you can't help but laugh at every fucking thing Matthew McConaughey does in this movie. It's just a fucking delight. He's so fucking funny. He's just an older guy that's been graduated from high school for quite a while, but he still seemingly hangs out with mostly high schoolers. Dave, Pink, and Mitch go to a pool hall called the Emporium. I find it hilarious that they put Mila Jovovich on posters for this movie that clearly must have been made after she got famous because she is fucking nobody in this movie, and I'm sure no one had ever heard of her in 1993. Don, Kevin, Slater, and some guy I've never seen before and didn't recognize and I don't really know who he was are riding in a car together smoking. Then Carl and some friends are leaving the dance in the middle of it to go hang out. Seriously though, I can't believe how fucking good this soundtrack is. I can't stress it enough. Don and O'Banion corner Carl's friend from the dance and paddle him like there's no tomorrow. Mitch runs into his sister Jody, who reveals that she asked the guys to go easy on Mitch, and he realizes this is why they were targeting him so much. Also, I'm 8 of 8 on spotting girls that I think are hot and being terrified that they're going to have been too young for me at the time of this movie, only to find out that they're in their mid-20s at the time of this movie, which is my cutoff these days, but alas, I may have to bump that up soon. Honestly, there's so much to talk about with this movie, but also not at the same time because there's not much plot here. I don't know what else to tell you. There's really not a plot to this movie. Dave says, that's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. All right. And it's truly an iconic creep line that is one of the few things I'll always remember about this movie. It's hilarious. There are so many quote-unquote characters in this movie that are so irrelevant that they're basically extras, and I don't even know for sure that they're not extras. Pink, Mitch, Don, and Kevin go for a ride, and they're smashing mailboxes, which was never a pastime of mine. To be honest, I also never want to be the driver for a mailbox smashing ride. I don't have depth perception, what with missing an eye and all and I can't really judge to get close and not run over the fucking mailboxes. So the guys stop to get beer, and a man comes and pulls a gun on them and ridicules them for smashing his mailbox and says it's a federal offense, 
and they try and play it off like they didn't do it. This guy with the gun is clearly fucking nuts, and he tries to get them out of the car. So they take off, and he starts shooting at them, but of course they don't die, because some movies just don't take chances like that. Mike, Tony, and Cynthia are still driving, and they're getting pretty philosophical with their discussions. Every time I hear the name Cynthia, I think of the show Rugrats, where Braddy Angelica has a little doll named Cynthia, and its hair is all fucked up looking, and it just looks like this doll has fucking seen some shit. Angelica would, like, talk to Cynthia all the time, and it was fucking hilarious. It's such a great cartoon, honestly. I think that it's one of the ones that if I went back and watched it, I would still find it funny as an adult. Anyway, Mitch goes in to buy some beer straight up with no fake ID, and he legitimately looks like he's fucking eight years old, but he bullshits the cashier and doesn't even get carded. I guess things were less stringent in the 70s, and the drinking age was 18 like it should be. The late great Tupac Shakur once said, Did you ever stop to think, I'm old enough to go to war, but I ain't old enough to drink. That's a good point. I mean, if you can fucking go and die for your country, you should be able to fucking throw back a beer. Then Carl and the gang run into Mitch on his way out of the store, and they agree to try and get back at O'Banion, but the audience isn't privy to their plans ahead of what they'll be doing. A couple of girls walk by O'Banion in the pool hall and mention that they heard Carl was getting busted outside, which I guess means he was getting paddled, like he got caught by the seniors. I love this character, Don, who is telling Mitch some girl has a crush on him, but I don't think I've ever seen Don in anything else, and I didn't even bother to look up his actor name. O'Banion comes out, and he's going to give Carl whooping against a building, and suddenly, at some point, this paint drips on O'Banion's head, and it's revealed that two of Carl's friends are on the roof above, and they dump two cans of paint on him, and he throws a shit fit. And then he drives off covered in paint, and he's never to be seen again. Dave stops by Cynthia, Mike, and Tony in their car, and he lets them know that a new party is in the works, and basically hits on Cynthia, and simultaneously puts down Mike and Tony in the process. Everybody gathers at what appears to just be an opening in the woods. I don't know what this place is. It's not like a park, I don't think. Tony almost gets in a fight with Nikki Cat's character, when Tony points out that he smells them smoking reefer, and Nikki Cat's character basically gets pissed because it's like it's none of his business. A bunch of guys are climbing on this radio tower thing, and Slater is messing with Mitch about some freshman having died falling off of it after only having one beer. I say that this movie is, is not yielding enough notes at this point, and you know, I put it down because I was like, God, I'm afraid that this isn't going to be enough. And of course, I'm going fucking longer than I ever go on these episodes. This freshman girl, Sabrina, comes to chat with Tony, and Cynthia and Mike kind of leave him to it. Pink is still stressing over the whole anti-drug contract, and his friends seem to have mixed feelings about it, and one friend I don't know the name of gives him a pep talk about how he shouldn't quit football. Oh hey, it's model-slash-actress Mila Jovovich playing a guitar and singing, and... It's just, like, her only moment in this movie overall. Like, she barely does anything but play this guitar and sing. Then we get this nice joke from Cynthia about how every other decade sucks. Like, 
the 50s were boring, but the 60s were good. And she says that clearly the 70s suck, which is their present. And she suggests that the 80s will be radical. And let me just break it to you right now. I mean, obviously everybody's in on that joke because this was made in 1993. So essentially the 80s were not radical or bitchin'. Pink is off making out with Jody, despite also seemingly being involved with Simone, who we've barely seen in this movie. Mitch is vibing with this girl, and all I can think is, who applied her eye makeup? Stevie Wonder. Mike's getting all fired up about fighting this guy who wanted to start shit with him earlier. He walks up and punches the guy once, and then proceeds to get the shit beat out of him. And the fight breaks up, and Mike's fighting back tears to the tune of Tuesday's Gone by Leonard Skinner. And I, of course, get very fucking sad because that song is just amazingly depressing. Then things are winding down with the party and Jody has left and Simone just happens to show up then. So Pink doesn't really ever get in trouble and nothing ever comes of his infidelity. So they all go and smoke on the 50-yard line at the football field. They're talking about the anti-drug contract, and Pink seems like he might sign it, but you don't really think he likes the idea. Then the cops come and bust them, and I feel like they could have run in this situation, but they just didn't. Maybe, Maybe the cops knew who they were, I don't know. Mitch is making out with this girl I don't know the name of still, and it's gotten so late that it's actually early morning and there's daylight. The cops called the coach to the field to tell them what Pink and Don were doing there. Pink argues with the coach because the coach is essentially trying to tell him who he should hang out with. Ultimately, he tells the coach that he may play ball, but he's never signing the anti-drug contract. Mitch sneaks into his house and his mom has been up waiting for him, but she gives him a free pass on the whole thing this one time only, even though she clearly knows he's drunk. The movie ends with Dave, Pink, Simone, and Slater driving while Slow Ride by Foghat is playing. I don't really get it though. Why is Slater in the backseat with Simone? Why wouldn't Pink be hanging out back there? Because, I mean, he could be like macking on her pretty hardcore if he was back there. So praise for this movie. The soundtrack is so great that I have to say it's just truly probably one of, if not the best soundtrack I've ever experienced. The whole flick seemed to be so realistic and grounded. I loved that. All of these characters feel like real people and the cast is amazing, of course. My only criticism is the only thing that you might call something of a plot that carries on throughout this whole movie is the thing with Pink's anti-drug contract, but that's not really a plot. Like, him trying to decide if he wants to sign this contract, that's pretty fucking flimsy. So, I mean, that's my only gripe about this movie, is it's just the plot is virtually non-existent, and you're just watching people do stuff, and it doesn't really build to anything. Okay, so for trivia, the character of Wooderson was based on Matthew McConaughey's older brother, The beer drunk by most of the cast, excluding minors, was real beer. Jason London refused to drink on set and was trying to stop smoking. The word man is said 203 times in this movie. On Thursday, October 7th, 2004, Bobby Wooderson, Andy Slater, and Richard Floyd, former high school classmates of Richard Linklater, 
sued Universal Studios, saying that Linklater did not get their permission to use their likenesses and surnames. Which is kind of a rookie move. I mean, fucking change their name enough that it's not exactly the same, and then you basically have nothing. But to actually give them the same last names is fucking risky. The three men still live in Huntsville, Texas, and the lawsuit was eventually dismissed because the statute of limitations had expired. Writer, producer, and director Richard Linklater's intent with this movie was to create an inverse John Hughes movie, which is ironic because The Breakfast Club is the previous movie I covered in this episode, and it's a John Hughes movie, and I didn't even know that this was a thing before picking these two movies. So on to info and ratings, we have a runtime of 103 minutes. This movie is rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. The budget was $6.9 million. Opening weekend, 918.1 thousand. Worldwide gross, 8 million. IMDb rating, 7.6. Rotten Tomato critics score, 92%. Rotten Tomato audience score, 90%. Personal rating, 4.5 out of 5 stars. It's just the whole lack of a plot, but it's still a very fun movie. I like it better than The Breakfast Club, but it's just... You don't have any plot to go on, and that's what I love in a movie. All right, everyone. Well, that is our show for today. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.